you've been uh, watching the news at all this week, you know that Egypt is all over it. Maybe you haven't been watching. Maybe you're one of the folks who's been laid out with the flu. It seems like half the congregation has had the flu. Or Congratulations on surviving this week. Uh, maybe you haven't noticed, but there, Egypt is all over the news right now because there's these huge protests, thousands of people marching to uh, oust this dictator, a guy named Mubarak, or something like that. It's got me thinking this week about how dictators and different regimes change, how kingdoms get built. It's got me thinking back to the days and to my days in uh, world history classes and, and, uh, and to my probably undue infatuation with things like World War II and learning history through movies and, and books. And it's got me thinking about how kingdoms normally get built. Recent history, you think about World War II era, you think about how Hitler came to power from the shambles of a regime that was broken by World War I and how the way he did it was the way so many other empires have been built. You do it through military force. You take control with power that can't be thwarted under the fear of death. And then, once you've got that power, you've got that stranglehold on society, then you, you build your kingdom with the best and the brightest. For Hitler, that meant you had to have pure Aryan race lines. And these guys, he would gather in from all around the empire, and he would put them into these training programs and try to raise them up as the administrators and the leaders in, the, in government and military. And that, that's pretty typical. You can study the ancient kingdoms of the past, the ancient empires like the Persians or the Babylonians, and you would see really similar patterns. You take control through the military might, and then you enshrine it by taking the best and the brightest and making them your delegates. And that's got me thinking about how radically different the kingdom of God works. Ultimately, Mark's gospel that we've been walking through page by page or visiting with us for the last five months or so, we've been in this, this story that a guy named Mark wrote, one of the earliest stories of Jesus' life and teaching. And really, what that story is about is kingdoms rising and falling. In particular, it's about a new kingdom breaking into history, the kingdom of God that Jesus came here to establish. That's what, that's what Mark's gospel is all about. It's a story of regime change. And yet, time and time again in this story, we have been shown that this kingdom doesn't look like or operate like any other kingdoms that you might be familiar with. It doesn't get established like you might expect, and its principles, its operating principles, don't look like you would expect. Mark's trademark in telling this story is that he gives us very little insight into Jesus' teaching. He tells us that Jesus does teach, but he doesn't give us a lot of the content of that teaching. What he does is he tells stories, and he puts them in certain orders that make his points for him. Time and again, particularly in the second half of the story that we've been looking at the last few weeks, we see that the, the hinge on which this story turns is the death of Jesus. We've seen Jesus predict it time and again. We've seen him explain to disciples who expected that, he, that his kingdom would come in like every other kingdom they could imagine, that it would come in with military might and, and wipe the floor with the oppressors, and then it would get established with the best and the brightest running it. That's what they were expecting. Time and again, Jesus is telling them, no. Yes, I have come to establish a kingdom, but I, I've come to do it through my death. We've seen examples in chapter 8. We saw an example in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, where we find ourselves today, we get one of the best examples of this line of teaching. It's a section of teaching that includes stories 
that hinge on a third passion prediction. A third time where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem not to reign in power yet. I'm going there to die, to give up my life. And these stories that Mark tells from verse 13 in chapter 10 all the way through the end of the chapter, they're about what it looks like to become a part of Jesus' kingdom. Time and again, this doesn't look like what you'd expect. What you'd expect is for military might to establish it and then for Jesus to go around picking the ones who seem to have the most to bring to the table. He's going to build a kingdom you would expect from the wealthy, from those who were wise and seasoned, maybe from rulers in government. That's who you'd expect him to start with. And yet he's, he's said time and again, he's starting with the weak, those who have little to offer, those who come like children. Before we read this long passage, I want to give you a sense of how the flow works because we're covering so much ground today that we're going to do it from more of a bird's eye level. Mark tells his stories in a really compelling way here. What he does is he gives us two positive examples of what it looks like to belong to this kind of kingdom, a kingdom that gets established through death. He gives us two positive examples and then two negative examples. This, in other words, is not what it looks like to belong to a kingdom that is established through the death of its king. He does it in this order. He tells a story in verse 13 through 16. If, you, if you've got your Bible, look at Mark 10. I'm going to point these out before we read them together. He tells a story in verses 13 through 16 that shows what it looks like to belong to this kingdom. He says that it belo- the kingdom belongs to people who receive it like children would receive it. Then he gives us the story of the rich young man who comes to him wondering what he has to do to inherit eternal life. In this story, one that's really familiar to us, what we get is a negative example that's compared to the example of the children. So if the children are what it looks like to receive the kingdom, this rich guy is what, it, is, is what it doesn't look like. This rich guy is what it looks like to miss the point. Then the, the center of the story, the hinge on which this whole uh, narrative turns, is Jesus predicting his death. That comes in verses 32 through 34. Then we get another negative example. So he's moved from positive to negative to another negative and back to a positive example. We get the example of James and John wondering if they can get the seats of honor in Jesus' administration. They want to know if they can sit on either side of him. In other words, they want to be the chief of staff and the secretary of state in his administration. They want to be the best and the brightest who Jesus calls to serve with him and and, and carry out his will. And then we get a final positive example in blind, a blind guy by the name of Bartimaeus who comes to Jesus knowing Jesus is his only hope, knowing that he can't save himself from his condition, that no one else can, and so he, he turns to Jesus. So we get a book-ended story. This is what it looks like to receive the kingdom. This isn't what it looks like. This isn't what it looks like either. Here again, this is what it looks like to receive and belong to Jesus' kingdom. For our purposes, we're going to take the positive examples first, try to break those down, understand what it looks like to belong to a kingdom like this one. Then we'll take the negative examples and try to understand by contrast how we can get into Jesus' kingdom. And then we'll look at the death of Christ as the key to why this kingdom works in the way that it does. That's where we're headed today, bird's eye view. Now, I hope you've gotten a good rest. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read the remainder of chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Let me say, too, if you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, we've got some for you. Uh, they're at the end of each aisle along the center. Flag somebody down, they'll be happy to pass one over to you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you just to take that with you and to let us know if you have any questions about it. This is God's word, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. 
And they were bringing children to him that he might touch him. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and grant their great ones and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first thing we want to notice about this this chapter is who the kingdom does belong to. In the first story about Jesus welcoming the children, and in the last story about Jesus healing Bartimaeus, we see that the kingdom belongs to the desperate. Let's look at the children. The first story is one of these positive examples. It shows what it's like to belong to the kingdom of God. And true to form, it isn't at all what you'd expect. His kingdom is not built on the rich. It's not built on the seasoned and the experienced, the wise, the powerful, the military or government leaders. What it looks like to belong to his kingdom is a whole lot more like children who are weak, who are foolish in the eyes of adults, who are without connections or money like those who have nothing to bring to the table. The disciples' reaction to the crowds, when the crowds start bringing their children to Jesus to be touched by him, the disciples' reaction shows what children, how children were viewed in that time. The disciples rebuked them. It's a strong word. They, they, they tried to get them out of there. This guy is bringing in a kingdom. Don't you get that? He doesn't have time to, to, to waste on children. We're headed to Jerusalem probably, in their minds, to establish the kingdom once and for all. This was a distraction to them. But Jesus welcomes these children. He says that the kingdom belongs to such as these children and that only those who receive it, like these children, receive it at all. So the question, of course, the key to this section is what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? I think we we don't want to say that this means children are automatically in, in the kingdom. The kingdom is only belonging, belongs to those who are, who are kids. That's not what Jesus is saying. I mean, he uses, it's, it's an analogy. That's why he uses words as, such as these, or who receives it like a child. So, so what does he mean? What's the point of the analogy? I think he said children are those who are utterly dependent on their parents or on their caretakers for everything that they, that they have, and they know this. They know it so well that kids don't even offer to barter for things like food from the table. You don't see a five-year-old offering something in exchange for the meal that they received that night. That's just not how it works. The, the kids know they depend on their parents, and they take it for granted. 
They expect it in the best sense of that word. They expect it in the sense that they rest on it, that, it's, that it just is for them, and they receive it willingly and automatically. The most raw example of this in kids is, is something I'm living with now as a father of an almost three-month-old. Walter is utterly helpless. And though he's, a, he's, he's generally a happy baby, it's like the switch comes on around the time that he's supposed to eat. You could just about set your watch by it. He'll be just happy, playing, smiling, cooing, cawing, all that good stuff. And then all of a sudden it's like a, a flitch gets swept, and he is in total meltdown mode. He is screaming. His, his face is red. His, his, his eyes are bloodshot. His, his mouth is wide open. And he is, I mean, he's putting his whole being into this expression of despair. It's not psychological despair. He's not thinking, where is my next meal going to come from? But it's, it's physical despair, right? It's, I've got to have this food, and I can't give it to myself. All he can do, the only way he can receive what he needs, is by crying out desperately, right? That's what kids do. And that's what Jesus is saying it's required for entrance into his kingdom. You've got, to, you've got to enter Jesus' kingdom like Walter enters every meal, crying out because that's the only facility you have. The story of Bartimaeus at the end of this cycle makes basically the same point. Bartimaeus is a guy who's blind and probably been to every doctor that he knew of, maybe even some sort who knows he's tried every he's tried every avenue no one's been able to help him he's sitting there he hears Jesus is coming he already believes Jesus is is the messiah he calls out to him as the son of david the one who's promised to come to deliver he has this faith in Jesus ability and he has a faith that is the rest that Jesus is calling for he won't be silenced people try to put him off try to Again, he's sort of a distraction. This guy has nothing to offer to the kingdom, right? He's blind. He, he's just sitting by the road. He has, he has no clout. He probably has very little, if any, money. He's likely a beggar. He doesn't have anything to offer to this kingdom that Jesus has come here to establish. So they want to move on. They want to silence him and let Jesus get to his more important clients, if you will. Jesus hears him, and he comes to him, and he recognizes in Bartimaeus utter helplessness that is self-conscious. Bartimaeus knows where he stands. He knows what he doesn't have and what he can't give to himself, and so he calls out to Jesus. And that's the faith that Jesus honors. Jesus delivers him, just like we've seen time and again throughout Mark's gospel. This is what it looks like to belong to Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't look like wealth, power. It doesn't look like it would look to belong or have a place in Hitler's regime. It looks like despair, absolute emptiness. That's what faith is looks like. The kingdom belongs to the desperate, not the self-reliant. The powerful images of faith that we've just covered are not the bulk of this group of stories. Most of the emphasis, in terms of how much detail is given and how long the stories are, falls on these negative examples. Here is not what it looks like to enter Jesus' kingdom. This, in other words, is what it would look like to enter the kingdoms of the world, perhaps, but not the kingdom Jesus came to establish. The first of these negative examples is, is a story that's likely familiar to many of us. It's Jesus' encounter with a rich man. It begins in verse 17 of chapter 10, goes all the way through verse 31. The connection between this story and the story of Jesus receiving the children is a, is a strong one that maybe you haven't recognized before. We tend to look at those stories in isolation. We tend to get taught them, you know, as children. 
as individual stories, but they go together because Mark is using them by contrast to show what it looks like to belong to the kingdom. It looks like despair. It doesn't look like riches and goodness. The connection is obvious in the text itself because of the same words keep coming up. The language about the kingdom and what it looks like to belong to the kingdom comes up in both of these stories. So this man comes up to Jesus, and he, and he comes to him with a question, not like the Pharisees have come to him with questions. We've seen that before. The, the passage we looked at earlier in chapter 10, right before this, a passage about divorce and marriage, was, was an example of the Pharisees coming up to Jesus with a question and basically attacking him with it. They want to work him into a corner where he looks bad. This guy's not really coming from that place. He's sincere. And he comes up to Jesus with a question that all of us have asked at some level, in some way, knowing that we're going to die, no matter how healthy we may feel right now, we all know that death is waiting for us. And knowing that we're going to die, we want to know, is it possible to live beyond death? And if so, what do I have to do to live beyond death? He asked Jesus, what does it take to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response to him is brilliant, I think. He responds in phases. He doesn't just come out with it. He wants to lead the man there through a question and answer, almost like a Socratic method. He first tells the man, you know the commandments. He lists off a few of the, the famous ones, the Ten Commandments, those, those lists, that list of rules that has governed Israel's life under God for thousands of years by this point. You know what the commandments are. And the man replies that he's done all of them. I've kept these things all of my life from my youth. And given these specific commandments, that's pretty. That's probably true. They're big things, obvious things. You know whether or not you've committed murder, right? You know whether or not you've committed adultery or whether or not you've, you've stolen something. Those things are obvious, and this guy knows he's not guilty. So he tells Jesus, I'm good there. I've done it. Jesus' response, in this case, doesn't come at the man to try to show that he hasn't obeyed these laws. He responds in love. We're told that he hears this response and he loves him. What he responds with is a more probing example to show the man where his heart really lies. The man thinks that he's okay because he's done all of these things. Jesus isn't going to dispute whether he did these things. He's going to show him that there's something deeper at issue here. Jesus tells the man, okay, one more thing. You lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus hits him where it hurts. He knows his subject. He knows who he's talking to. He knows where his idols are, and he exposes the idol at the center of his life. This guy can't do it. We're told that he's disheartened. And he goes away sorrowful. The question is, why does Jesus go here? Is he saying that we can't own property and still follow him? Is he saying that money is necessarily evil and that to have a lot of it? Like all of us who live in the West do compared to all of world history and the rest of the world today, most of the world today, that is. Is he saying that we're all guilty unless we... Give away everything. We have no hope of being part of the kingdom. I don't think that's what he's saying. He doesn't make that a requirement elsewhere. People have been asking him. He's been talking about what it takes to follow him all through this letter. He's never, he's never said this before. I think the reason he goes there with this man is that he's revealing that though this guy thought he'd kept all the commandments, he had broken the first 
commandment. The way the Ten Commandments work is that they start with God calling for absolute allegiance to Him. You will worship me and serve me as your God, and you'll have no other God before me. That is the fountain for which all these other little commands come. And that's where this man had fallen. What is a God if not an object of devotion? What you pursue, your, your goal, your desire, uh, what, what you live for, what you serve. And, in return, your source of security. What is a God if not something you're serving, pursuing with your life that provides you with some level of security? For this man, he couldn't live without the security that his wealth provided him. It's doubtless how he identified himself over against other people. He was one who'd earned more than others. He was one who was wealthy. Rather than seeing himself as, in, in light of his submission to God, his being created by God in his image, his desire to serve God for God's own sake, he saw himself as a rich man. That was his God. And it kept him from entering the kingdom as if he had nothing in light of his dependence on God. That's why Jesus says with this debrief with his disciples after this guy has gone away, he tells them it's, it's more likely that a camel can enter through the eye of a needle than that a rich person can get into heaven. The reason it's so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven is that the wealthy struggle to see that they depend on God. It is so easy to rest in the security that, that money provides you that it's almost impossible, Jesus says, to see where you really stand. Your wealth is like a veil that covers your eyes from the way that things really are, from the fact that you don't rest in God in the way that he's called you to. That's why it's so difficult. The disciples are understandably amazed at Jesus' words. And here's why. Here's why they're, they're so amazed. In my translation says they're exceedingly astonished. The reason that, they, that it's so hard for them to imagine why this guy would have such a hard time entering the kingdom of God is that this guy represented for them a prototype of what it looked like to be faithful. He had checked off this list of obedience to these main commands. He was wealthy, and in their system, in their way of understanding the world, wealth was a, a sign that God favored you, that God was pleased with you and, and with your performance. God is the one who gives wealth, and he does it based on those who were obedient. That's the way they thought about it. So this guy both can check off this list and his money proves it. So if he, this prototype, if it's almost impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God, their question is, how is it possible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God? The way they put it is, who can be saved? I've struggled to understand that question in the past. Why would they ask that just because a rich man can't be saved? Why does that mean anyone else can't be saved? I think the reason that they take his example of the rich and apply it to everyone is that for them, those who were wealthy got that way because they were obedient, because they stood the closest to God's standards. If this guy, who's got it all, can easier, if it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than this guy to get in, who can be saved? Theirs is a despair about the possibility of salvation, and that is precisely where they're meant to be. It's precisely the point at which they're ready to receive what Jesus offers. This is what it looks like to be a child. This is where they're ready to see that what they want is only possible through somebody else. Jesus' response to them 
is that with, with man, it's impossible. You're right. No one could be saved if left to themselves. But with God, all things are possible. Of course, the disciples don't get it quite yet. The next story shows that clearly. We've got this, this next passion prediction where Jesus talks about his death. That's the hinge. That's been a centerpiece throughout this section of Mark's gospel. He teaches about discipleship. He tells them about his death. He teaches about discipleship. He tells them about his death. He teaches about discipleship, all pointing back to the fact that how it looks to follow Jesus is tied to the fact that Jesus came here to die. Now he does it again. He tells us in the center of this collection of stories that he's going to die. This is the thing that governs everything else. And now we get another story of the disciples failing to recognize it. James and John, two of the rock stars of the, among the disciples, two of the, that little group who gets taken behind the scenes, who, who got to see the transfiguration in chapter 9, they come to Jesus wanting to make sure where they stand, that they're right about where they think they stand in the kingdom. Is an account that looks a lot like what we covered in chapter 9. It shows that they still don't understand the nature of the kingdom. They don't understand how someone comes to belong to it. And they don't understand how kingdom citizens in, in God's kingdom relate to other citizens of the kingdom. James and John ask Jesus for the place of honor in his administration. They're expecting he's going to be the Messiah. They know that means a kingdom. They know it means unmistakable glory. And they think we're going to Jerusalem to establish it. The time has almost come where everyone will see us for who we are. And what they want is to be crowned alongside him. That's why they ask in verse 37, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus' response shows that they don't really know what they're asking. They think they can take whatever's going to happen to him. He asks them, can you take it? He knows it means death. They don't get that. They think they can take whatever's coming for Jesus. They don't understand that it's ultimate humiliation and even death. And here's what their request of Jesus shows. When you boil it down, this is what it shows about how they viewed Jesus and their relationship to him. They clearly believed that by this point, they had done enough to deserve a place of honor in his kingdom. They understood that Jesus had the power to establish the kingdom. That was something he was going to have to do. The, the creation of the kingdom was his. But they still believe that who's in the kingdom and where they rank in the kingdom was based on individual performance. They knew that they were part of Jesus' inner circle. They'd seen the transfiguration. They were called in for behind-the-scenes miracles. And they thought, clearly, that they had distinguished themselves enough to deserve a place of honor in, this, in the kingdom Jesus was establishing. Does this sound like childlike desperation to you? Does this sound like receiving the kingdom like a child would receive his dinner? No. But it's so natural. The default position of our hearts is the conviction that we stand where we stand before God based on what we do. That's naturally how we view things. It's as old as the old nature deities of ancient cultures who believed that they could manipulate the forces like rain or, or, or sun by offering things or doing things that would be pleasing to those deities. They wanted to put themselves in a position of control over forces that seemed out of their control. It comes so naturally to us that we treat God in the same way. That's certainly what James and John were doing here. We think if we do the right things, if we can, if we can do the things we think he wants, then he will owe us. James and John thought that they were owed a position of honor in God's kingdom. 
what it boils down to is an attempt to manipulate God by our deeds, to get into a position where God has to save us because we deserve it. This is certainly how the other ten disciples took their request. They saw in their request an assumption by James and John that they were better than the other ten, that they deserved something the other ten didn't get, and they're angry about it. Jesus calls them all to himself and explains again, after he's explained it so many times before, that this is not how my kingdom works. Yes, the kingdoms of the world, among the Gentiles, he said, the goal is to lord it over people, to exercise authority over people. He says in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it's not to be that way among you. If you boil down all conflict throughout human history, if you boil down classism and racism and nationalism, all those isms that get at divisions between human cultures and societies, what they boil down to is a desire to establish yourself and your superiority over other people. It comes so naturally. It's a survival of the fittest way of looking at the world. And it's all through human history. And it's in ultimately in James and John's request. That's where Jesus calls them on it. They believe they, had, they were more fit than the others in their group. But Jesus' kingdom isn't like the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world. What they miss is that the way his kingdom operates, a kingdom that belongs only those who enter as desperate children, that kind of kingdom levels the playing field. If you enter only as those who have nothing to bring to the table, who ent- you enter as, as one who's despairing, and that's all you've got is a cry of despair to God. If you enter like a child, it levels the playing field. You've got nothing that anyone else doesn't also have. It undermines that basic tendency to try to assert your superiority over other people. It eliminates any kind of superiority based on race or class or nationality or performance. And what it leads to is a life of service. Because having nothing, you were given much, and that frees you to give to others. That's why Jesus says, verse 44, Whoever is going to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, we've seen through these stories that the kingdom belongs to those who are desperate, not to those who rely on themselves. The question The question Mark has been getting at in the last few chapters is why? Why does the kingdom work this way? Why do you have to come in as those who are empty-handed rather than as those who have a lot going for them? I think the third thing that we see from this text is that the kingdom belongs to the desperate and not to the self-reliant because it only belongs to those who rest on Jesus. Jesus' response to his disciples here gives the most clear explanation we've seen yet in Mark for why he had to die. Mark has been telling us that he was going to die. He's told us that it's absolutely necessary, that it's the way the kingdom comes in. He hasn't said explicitly why Jesus had to die. In Mark 10.45, he does explain it. And it explains the reason that the kingdom works in the way that it does. Ultimately, weak and unaccomplished and helpless children know what the wise and successful and wealthy young man didn't know. Ultimately, Blind Bartimaeus sees what the disciples, who'd seen even the transfiguration, couldn't see. That the kingdom belongs to those who rest on Jesus, 
as a provider of what they can provide for themselves. You enter this kingdom this way because the kingdom, this realm of peace and harmony, of of restored relationship between God and his people, that's a kingdom that's established only through Jesus' death. The key reason that the disciples misunderstand how they should relate to each other inside the kingdom is that they misunderstand the ground of their standing before God, that it's based not on what they deserve but on what Jesus offers them in grace. Jesus gives all, he he roots all of this instruction on discipleship in the fact that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This statement, this last statement, defining the death that he came to die, is the centerpiece of this entire section in Mark. This explains why Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to die. It explains what he came here to do. Yes, he came to establish a kingdom, but he came to do it in a way that only he could by giving up his life to make it possible for sinful humans to exist in a realm of peace and harmony with God. There's been a lot of talk about death up until now. This is the clearest statement about why death had to happen. And it hinges on the need for a ransom. This is language that's borrowed from Isaiah chapter 53. We read part of it earlier in our service. It's this beautiful chapter in Isaiah's prophecy on this suffering servant. A servant who's coming to suffer on behalf of the people of Israel. To give himself for their sins, not his own. Mark pulls language from that section, applies it to Jesus as the one that you've been waiting for. The concept of ransom, what he's getting at here, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's rooted in all of our, our sense of justice, what's right, how, how wrong is punished. It's about equivalence. It's about a substitute, a penalty that one takes that fits the crime done by another. It's all about equivalence. Now, to some of us, The notion of a God who demands satisfaction, one who's got to be appeased by blood, seems dreadfully primitive. Maybe it's even a little bit offensive. And if that's where you are, let me challenge you to think a little bit more deeply about this. Think about our legal system, what we all take for granted. We have laws that govern our society. They're written as our best attempt to capture and insist on what's right, on what's just. We have judges that help us ensure that the laws are obeyed for the good of all. Those judges help us when those laws are broken by assessing a penalty, right? They, they figure out exactly what has been done, and they try to come up with a punishment that fits that offense. It balances out the offense. That's why justice is often depicted as, as this scale, right? You see the old uh, mythological statues at these courthouses a lot of times, and it's this figure, justice, Holding up scales. The idea is that punishment has got to fit the crime. That the right has to be reestablished. This seems right to us. If a judge was to look the other way when a law was broken, it would seem wrong. Just as it would seem wrong if the penalty was too severe. If they, if they gave you the death penalty because you, you, you stole somebody's car, that would seem too harsh to us. It would seem to be over-penalizing. The scales would be tipped. So looking the other way wouldn't be right. Opposing too great a penalty wouldn't be right. Now, if we see this kind of assessment as right among human judges, if it's the reason we celebrate them, that they're good at making these kind of equivalences, these kind of 
these kind of judgments, if that's what we celebrate in them, if that's what makes them known as just judges, if that's, what, if that's the reason that some states we would vote on them, then why would we not celebrate the same quality in God? God's the creator of all things, and he's got the right as the creator to order them as he sees fit in his wisdom and his holiness. His holiness is so perfect, and his commitment to justice is so complete that if he were to just look the other way, when just laws are broken, then he himself would cease to be who he is. Just as a judge that we recognize as just stops being a just judge worthy of praise when they look the other way because some mob boss did something wrong and paid him off, right? That's the kind of judge that we would skewer. We expect the same from God. That God cares deeply enough about sin to punish it as a reason to praise him. Like we'd praise any human judge who judges rightly. And if it's right for God to punish wrong and uphold justice, the question becomes, what kind of punishment fits the crime? What kind of equivalence is necessary? What kind of ransom would be necessary if those who are guilty are to get off without being punished themselves? What is weighty enough to balance those scales? That's the question that's raised by the storyline of the Bible. This is where Jesus' death comes in. The offense against a God who is infinitely holy is an infinitely weighty thing. The punishment, like the offense, is an infinite punishment. The only fitting substitute, the only possible ransom, the only possible equivalence in this matter, other than the absolute punishment of everything that God had made, was his own perfect, holy, divine Son. That's the teaching of Christianity. That's the implication of Mark 10.45. For a kingdom to exist, for a sphere of harmony and restored relationship between God and his people, for that to even be possible, humans had to be worthy of existing in that kingdom in the presence of a holy God. We can't be worthy. So we need a substitute. We need a ransom. We need an equivalence to be worthy on our behalf in, way, in a way that we can't be for ourselves. That's why Jesus came to die as a ransom for many that makes our participation in the kingdom possible. And this truth, the purpose of Jesus' coming, defined by his death as a ransom, shapes everything about how the kingdom works, how you get into it, how you flourish within it, how you treat others who are also citizens of that kingdom. It explains why the obedience and the wealth of the young man for all his apparent sincerity were not enough to secure him eternal life. What he had to offer, as much as it was in human terms, could not balance the scales of what he owed given the sin against God that he had committed. It explains why this guy lived as if he could secure eternal life himself. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if the gap between him and God were bridgeable. The disciples, for their part, they had ambitions that assumed that they deserved something from God other than death. As if their performance, as if what they had done on the trail with Jesus could outweigh the debt that they owed to God. What they didn't get is that the kingdom belongs only to those who receive it like children. Who know that Jesus is the only bridge. That Jesus is the only door by which you enter this kingdom. They have, you have to enter this kingdom, in other words, as children who wouldn't even attempt to barter for a spot at this table because you've got nothing to barter with. 
what you should see in these stories is that the place of despair, if that's where you are this morning before God, if you see your emptiness clearly, if you have experienced disappointment that has rocked your world and reminded you that you're not who you thought you were, that if, if that's where you are, that's the place of faith. You've been given a gift to see your own emptiness, to see your need for Jesus. You feel like you can't even believe on him on your own? I've been there. It's a painful place to be. It's also the place where Jesus meets you in faith. Cry out to him like a child, like a baby who can't even feed himself on his own. That's the faith that Jesus promised he's going to receive with open arms. You feel like your sins are too great? Like you've done too much wrong to be able to have a place at this table? You're wrong. God's grace in Christ is rich, and it's free, and it's perfect, and it's an all-sufficient ransom. The kingdom belongs to you. We pray with me, Lord. We thank you that you don't count our sins against us. That you've given us everything we need to participate in your kingdom fully and joyfully and without fear in absolute security because you have given us an absolutely perfect and all-sufficient Savior. Forgive us, Lord, for the familiarity with which we normally think about these things. What we ask for is eyes to see how radical and how beautiful these promises are. What we ask for is an ability to see Jesus for who he is. As the unmatched and all-sufficient Savior of our souls. We pray for eyes to see. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.